Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with writer, comedian, and musician Lane Moore, who was in town a couple of weeks ago promoting her best-selling book, How to Be Alone, If You Want To, and Even If You Don't. Lane has previously written for The Onion, McSweeney's, The New Yorker Shouts and Murmurs, and many other publications. She is also the former sex and relationships editor at Cosmopolitan and the creator of the popular comedy show Tinder Live. Hey, Lane, how's it going today? Good, good. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. And how have you been enjoying New Orleans so far? It's been... It's been complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's an honest answer. I think it is an honest answer. It's 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 good and it's good and weird. Yeah, well good. Yeah. We'll take good and weird. Yeah, that's, I was going to I was going to say but I feel like that's what New Orleans is. It's, it's like pretty even keel on the uh the answer responses right yeah, there yeah, that we yeah. get. Um so before we get into the book, which I'm yeah. super excited to talk about, I did want to know what was the first thing you ever wrote that you were really proud of? Oh, I like that question. Um, so my first book, and I'm going to use it in quotes because it was technically a book, but it was not uh, published by a major <laughs> publishing house. It was published by me in my <laughs> my home as a child. I wrote a book about my childhood hamster, and I don't remember anything about it. I don't know if this was... This is like the earliest thing I remember yeah. writing, I guess. And I illustrated it as well, multi-hyphenate even then. And I just... You know, my uh, my mom had got this, like, you know, publish-your-own-book kit from, like, the local bookstore. Yeah. And it was so cool, like, just having, like, I was, it was just a thrilling feeling. And so it's kind of funny, like, when um, How to Be Alone came out, I was like, technically this is my second book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to brag. I also wrote a pretty, pretty stellar, best-selling book about a hamster that was... I mean, you know, you, you can maybe still get copies of it in my mom's basement. That's good. <laughs> um, but outside of that, I did win some award as a child for, for writing, and I don't remember what it was about, but I just, I always loved, I always loved writing. My, my earliest memories were, like, writing and making music and writing plays and directing those plays, and my favorite things to write about were, outside of, you know, hamsters, were, um, which is, you know, great material. Stephen King pulls from that well as well. He does, he does indeed. Yeah, right? <laughs> but uh, I always loved, like, hidden worlds. Or, like, I loved, like, the line with the wardrobe. I loved C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And I loved the idea that, like, one of my favorite things to do as a little kid was um, when we'd go to my great-grandparents' house, I would, like pull back their clothes just to see if there was a secret door because you just don't know and you just you just want to make sure but I just I just really loved magic and yeah. I loved the idea that if I just did the right thing or uncovered the right thing or you know pulled this book on a bookshelf some door would turn and I would enter into some place that was a little bit better than normal life yeah no I get you that I, I totally did the same thing at my grandparents house really? actually just just thinking like there are a lot of coats in here. Like, there might be there something. There might be a passage. You know? I just, you can't, because if we were kids in movies, like, there would be a passage. Yeah, exactly. And then if we didn't check, then, like, we just miss out on a passage. <laughs> and on, on my mom's side, they did, they were from New Orleans originally, oh, yeah. and I grew up in Baton Rouge. And so nice. they always had, like, costume, like, um, costume things. Like, like there's a sequel. So that's coat, my favorite right? part of New Orleans so far, yeah. is that it's, like, the love, the love of costumes and things like that. I mean, nobody yeah. can see right now, but I'm, like, covered in, like, glitter and pearls just for me. Yeah. Just, like, I'm not, this is just an everyday look. <laughs> but I love, I would say that that's the, I don't know, I think that's been the 
coolest thing I would say about New Orleans is it is that it's I don't know the 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 colorfulness like that's just that's the way I like to live like even the I'm sure this is unintentional but um even these look a little bit glittery like the studio yes. <laughs> the studio I'm like is that a coincidence I don't think so but I, yeah I don't know anyway that was a, a tangent on that. No, yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, it's yeah. just, yeah, it's it's pretty magical. Um, one yeah. of the things I've gotten from talking to you and also reading the book and yeah. following your, your other things as you do, you do a lot and we'll get into yeah. that. Um, your sense of humor. You have a great sense of humor. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Thanks. When did that kind of start developing? Like, when did you notice, did, did you have like a single moment where you're like, hey, I'm kind of funny? Yes, and I think, uh, maybe not a single moment, but I do remember really leaning into the thing that adults do with kids, which is that so many adults think that kids are stupid and they don't know when they're being funny. Yeah. And I so knew. Because um, I think, you know, you look at, like, when kids say the darndest things or, or what those types of TV shows, and it's like, oh, they don't even know this is funny. I think those kids do know that it's funny. Yeah. And it's just that adults tend to give kids so little credit. Yeah. Sometimes kids say things that are that are funny and they don't know that they're funny, but I just loved it. And I... I look back and there's like a photo I have from when I was like maybe two at most. And um, it's a photo of me holding this stuffed animal and I'm making the face of stuffed animal. Make the, the stuffed animal had a mouth on like kind of the side of its face. Like it was kind of doing this. And I was doing that face. And I was like, oh, my God, that was my first impression. Yeah. But like I think that I just always had that. I really think everything I am right now, so much of it, I was I came out this way for sure. Yeah. And just... I don't know, just love being funny. And I remember when I was a kid wanting to be Lucille Ball and Diana Ross. Yeah, that's a good combo. Yeah, because it was like I wanted the musical part and I wanted to be funny. And I just somehow that's what I wanted. Yeah, so that's really cool. And it's a good coping mechanism. I could see that. That was a big one. (laughs) I could see that, you know, especially in the book, you know, it's funny, but it does deal with a lot of topics that are really hard to talk about and a lot of aspects of your life growing up and even now that are just really difficult to deal with. Um, Um, Why did you decide to write a book that was going to be this hard for you to talk about, right? I ask myself that question often. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, and I'm so glad for it, but it's like, yeah, I do have, like, it just, I just, I don't really do anything halfway. I give everything to every project that I have, and it's just who I am. And so I didn't really want to write what people had kind of expected of me because I had this, I mean, I guess I'll tell uh, listeners a little bit of backstory in me. So um, I was a writer for The Onion for several years, and then I was cosmopolitan sex and relationships editor and things like that. And um, so I had done, you know, and been doing comedy and all these things for so long. So I think that people had this, had different ideas of me where it was like, you know, you're reading the things from The Onion and that's a very comedic side, although I did tend to write a lot of jokes that, you know, would kind of squeeze in LGBTQ issues and women's issues and domestic violence. And like I would try to find a way to get people laughing, but get people thinking about things on a deeper level. And then at Cosmopolitan, came in and made things super LGBTQ positive and body positive and feminist and really wanted to, at the time, no one was doing that in major women's magazines that had not really been done. Um, And then it was like about two years later was when like the boom hit of like, oh, I think we're going to do this. And I'm like, "Mm, well, okay. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> because, you know, but it's good. It's like, that's what you want. It's just that, you know, it's just a funny timing thing where you're like, I'm ready to do this now. Let's all do this. And people are like, I don't know. And you're like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And people yeah. are like, wait, that is a good idea. And I'm like, I told you. But uh, but it's 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 nice. It's good. There should be more of that. But um, so I think that people had all these different aspects of me. And I think I got, you know, I was seen as being just this like funny, cool person who it's like, yes, I am that. But I guess I just felt. I think like so many people, so many people feel this when you had a really hard childhood or upbringing or early part of your life or honestly entire life, um, when you have some pain in you and then people know you, you know, the professional, the professional you, even if the professional you is creative and you have to be. I don't know. It, it can be really easy for people to think that, like, oh, you've had this, like, really easy life and you're just fun. Yeah. And it's like, no, sometimes people are fun and funny and interesting because things have not been easy for them. Yeah. And I think there was a part of me that didn't relate to anyone, <laughs> really. And yeah. it was in, an interesting dichotomy because I was having all these people um, with the Onion. I didn't have a byline because Onion doesn't do bylines, but Cosmo I did. And. It was interesting because I'd see all these people on Twitter and they'd be like, oh, Lane Moore, I relate to her so much. And I'm like, really? I relate to no one. I've had the weirdest (laughs) life. But there was something about my writing that was translating. So anyway, that's a a long-winded way to say I think I just, I'd never seen a book like How to Be Alone written. I, the only stories that I had seen told were a lot of people who write memoirs or books about having challenging childhoods or challenging lives, they all end with them being totally healed now, yeah. them being totally fine, because that is the ending that everybody wants. And I understand. And of course, I mean, it's it's like it's like a romantic comedy. You want them to get together at the mm-hmm. end, even if life doesn't always end that way. Yeah, We want it. We want the fantasy. But I wanted to write a book that was about somebody who'd had... A lot of, of hardship and, and trauma and difficulty and, and that uh, their childhood pain and, and trauma that they went to, really, the things that happened to you as a child, they all shape you into your teen years and adult years and all these things. That it's They're not isolated. Yeah. And so the books that I had read were just like, yeah, my childhood was pretty rough, but fortunately I had a wealth of support and everything was fine after. And that's just, I don't think that's real for most people. I yeah. Think, for most people, you have this imprint, and then it just makes it so much harder to form friendships and, and romantic relationships and can even impact how you allow yourself to be treated in work scenarios and just all of these, you know. So I just really wanted to talk about this sense of feeling other and, and sense of not having the perfect family, not having the perfect friends who I see five times a week, not having the perfect partner who I met at 17 and we're still to get like just yeah. all these things that especially with you know social media it's everybody is taking it upon themselves to prove they all have those things yeah and i kind of wanted to be the person who raised their hand and was like hey i don't is anybody else lying i don't want to lie i don't like yeah. let's just this is maybe we're all just actually in pain and we're all trying to keep up with this idea yeah and i don't want to <laughs> I, I love that no I, I had a friend recently um maybe maybe a year ago he i asked him how he was doing he's like you know i'm doing okay i'm getting to a point where i look at instagram and i stop seeing these people with these wonderful lives and realize that a they're most likely in debt or, <laughs> or b they have an extremely wealthy family so that is a, and that is such a huge part yeah. um, of how to be alone is I do talk about that a bit like in in terms of 
the things that we don't want to talk about um, in the arts, but in but in, in the world in general, where it was like when I started interning and I was like, oh, I'm so, so broke. Like, how can people afford to work for free? And it's because they either have incredibly wealthy families or supportive families. Mm-hmm. And one thing I like to talk about a lot is that sometimes people will say, well, we didn't have money, but we had love. And I'm like, do not discount that. That is gigantic because there are families who, if their child needs to intern, will scrape together everything they have and help that person intern. And let me tell you, like, that is its own privilege. Of course, it's not as much privilege, you know, perhaps as uh, someone who has who has love and a gigantic financial net. Yeah. But I think people who've never faced this don't know that the option of not having financial safety net and not having an emotional loving safety net not having either one of those is possible. We act like there's two categories and then everybody else just has to pretend that that doesn't exist. And yeah. I hate that because you know, it does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's so interesting because, you know, as much as social media can connect us and, you know, uh, keep us in touch and see different things, it does really tarnish these ideas of like the struggles behind people, right? It becomes caricatures yeah. um, and it kind of removes the context surrounding people and it makes us it makes it harder to see people uh, when it should make it easier, right? Well, and then you're you're comparing yourself to someone unfairly. Like whenever there's like somebody, could be anyone. This could be in the arts. This could be in business. And it's like, oh my goodness, can you believe how much this person's achieved at 18? And I'm like, billionaire parents. Yes, yes. I can. <laughs> totally. Like, why are we not talking about this? And it doesn't diminish someone's like, that's fine. But let's talk about the tools we've given people. Like, yeah. I've seen that even with filmmakers where they're like, oh, did you see this filmmaker so-and-so made by 19? You know, this film this person made by 19. Can you believe it? And I'm like, they had huge, hugely wealthy parents who were hugely connected. I was making incredible films at 13. Yeah. But you're not going to see those. I don't know. Like, I wasn't a Coppola. Sorry. Uh, yeah, right. Know? Exactly. <laughs> and I just, the only reason, you know, it's I, I always try to be careful when I talk about this because I'm not trying to sound like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. But, but I just... Don't like how how much of our lives, like you're saying, we spend comparing ourselves to people who are not running the same race we are. Yeah. Like if we're because we act like everybody in the world is is given the same exact resources. We're all given the same backpack filled with the same coping tools, mm-hmm. and then whoever makes it first really had something special. And sometimes someone's backpack is full of rocks, and sometimes it's full of jet fuel. Yeah. And like we just have to, you know. So so much of this book was wanting to talk about these things that that it just it does make a difference in how easily we're able and and helpfully and happily we're able to move through the world depending on which it's worth noting absolutely and and I, I note in how to be alone that it is not a choice you literally get born into a family and you don't but it's not like what you deserve like so many of the messages we talk about are like oh no one will love you as much as your as your parents and i'm like what if your parents couldn't love you? What if they did? Like, what? Like, these are random people yeah. we got we got put with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, but it, there's this idea, and I know this from my own experience and so many people who have written me that whoever you got assigned is not necessarily what you deserved. Yeah. Because everybody deserves love. And so often the parents that you got, that you got assigned uh, that didn't love you, their parents didn't love them, and it's this whole cyclical, cyclical thing, you know? Sad, perpetuating thing, yeah. but man, we will spend the rest of our lives internalizing it, and especially, and then it's amplified when we're comparing ourselves to other people yeah. who happen to get assigned something, in theory, better. 
Yeah. It's um, just painful. <laughs> no, totally. And, you know, one of the, the things you write in the book, one of the lines that I really adored and I'd love to share with our listeners is, um, at times I struggled to feel seen, to have my history feel seen, to have where I come from feel seen because I, quote unquote, turned out great. But that doesn't mean that I am fine. And I think, you know, that comes to the heart of what we were just talking about right yeah. there. And I really love that you have Thanks. that. Um, speaking about the things that people say yeah. and the ways people talk about and what they're looking for to put people in a box that are frame people. Totally. We love that yeah. as a culture and I hate it as a person. Yes. yes. <laughs> as, a, as a complex person as we all are. Yeah. When did you start noticing those types of rhythms and patterns behind people? So I was such a curious child and yeah. I think I was very frustrating probably um, yeah, uh, for my for my parents. <laughs> uh, I think, I, you know, I may have been for a lot of parents. It's, I think that's why I talk a lot in the book about loving uh, literary orphans like Matilda and um, Pippi Longstocking and Anne of Green Gables and things like that, who were also like very inquisitive, kind of like tiny adults, just wise beyond their years. And, you know, I remember keeping my parents up really late at night and being like, why are people like this? Why do they do this? Like my brain has always turned on at night, yeah. which is a total artist thing. And I know that now, but at the time I think it was just annoying for everyone. But I was just like, what about this? And why is this like this? And I don't understand. And I also just had like a very profound sense of justice. Yeah. And I didn't like when things were wrong and people were behaving inappropriately. And like, I remember there was a, like coming home from school one day and there was a girl in school who was getting picked on for being adopted. And, you know, my mom told me, like, threw my backpack down, and I was like, it isn't right. She, it's not her fault. She's adopted. She did nothing wrong. This is ridiculous. This is, like, just so indignant, you know? So I think that I was always just very interested in, like, why people made the choices that they were, you know, as I talk about in the book, very interested in people's love stories and how they met. And, um, you know, I've always been a very uh, empathetic. Some people say empathic. I'm never sure which one it is. I like empathetic. Um, <laughs> I just think it sounds nicer, even though it contains the word pathetic. But um, <laughs> which some people would argue they're wrong. But I've just always had that nature about me that just I was just a very sensitive child and very aware and I, I, I kind of love things like that, like ways that you were as a child that you're like, oh, man, now look at everything I'm doing and how I am. Because yeah. it's just only those things about you that are so fundamental uh, have only grown. And so wanting to figure people out and, and how they behave. My two favorite classes in high school were English and sociology. Like that doesn't surprise me at all. Like and everything, everything else I, I didn't care about. And psychology was also good. But sociology and English, I was just like, I care about words and I care about why people act the way they act. Yeah. And in that way, on my best days, I try to look at if you believe like some people spiritually believe that before you come into this life, you choose your family because they'll teach you lessons you're supposed to learn. And in that way, I think, oh, maybe I was born into a complicated, challenging family because I was really interested in how people worked and why they made the decisions and how one thing would impact another. And it's like, well, that'll that'll do it. Yeah. So I think it's just been this this through line. And then um, observing people through humor also was a really useful tool because you can get through to people with humor mm -hmm. more than you can anything else. So I, it really has been this, I guess, lifelong thing that's just continued to evolve. And then so many of the observations in How to Be Alone were things that I was learning myself and took a leap of faith 
that other people felt this way. Yeah. Because what if they didn't? <laughs> what if I was just writing a bunch of things and people were like, nope, I never think about that. I never feel it. I don't have too many feelings. It's just you. There was that risk, and I felt it all the time. But I felt like, you know what? I am going to put all these thoughts in there just in case there's even one other person in the world, especially when you haven't seen anyone talk about these things. Yeah. If there's even one other person on the planet who reads this and goes, oh, me too. Oh, that's me. And I get so many letters from people saying, I've never seen anything like this. And I feel that all the time. And I thought it was just me. And so thank goodness it's been it's been accurate. And it's been helpful for me to hear, too, because yeah. I thought. Like, there's a part, of, it's it's this beautiful kind of, it's a good kind of cycle where I'm like, I think this is just me. Here you go. Here's the book. And people are like, I thought this was just me, just so you know. And I'm like, oh, we're so, connected now. You're like, like fostering community with that. Absolutely. So it's a really kind of beautiful that a book called How to Be Alone is fostering community. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you know, that, that is appropriate for a, a former writer of The Onion. So Yeah, right, um, exactly. Subverting yeah. these expectations. <laughs> totally. um, speaking of the book, I was wondering if you could share a segment for us. Yes, please. So I'll be reading from a chapter called Happy Holidays to Everyone But You, You Lonely Weirdo. And I wanted, I wanted to write this chapter just to give you a little bit of an introduction. I wanted to write a chapter about how challenging the holidays can be for so many people. And it's it's keeping with everything we've been talking about, how often people ask things like, what are you doing for the holidays? You're supposed to be like, things that are socially acceptable. <laughs> like, it's just so awful. And I just wish we wouldn't. And it's, I wanted to kind of uh, also give some pointers to help people if they have a challenging time during the holidays, which statistically is most of us. So I don't know why we're keeping this all under wraps. Yeah. So, okay, I think I'm maybe I'll just start from there, okay? You know those dumb softball questions everyone asks you when you first meet them in an effort to have a passing knowledge of who you are as a person so they can go, oh, nice, and you can say, yeah, because we're still doing this shit for some reason? These questions are meant to be super easy, no pressure, slide into home base while walking with the casual pace of a tourist in Times Square. But for me, I'd rather you just ask me a more direct, punch-to-the-face personal question. And unfortunately for me, every year around November, these questions reach a fever pitch worthy of severe fluids and bed rest and possibly a quarantine. This is a season of, what are you doing for the holidays? With the implied answer of, something heartwarming that makes sense to the person who asked the question, because anything less is too dark to even touch and you'll bum everyone out. Just keep it light or lie altogether. And I'd rather not do either option, but what else is there? Glad you asked, me. What else is Orphan Thanksgiving and Orphan Christmas Facebook invites? If you're not familiar with this embodiment of an eye roll, every year around the holidays, Thanksgiving in particular, my Facebook lights up like a tacky Thanksgiving tree with the words Orphan Thanksgiving in a bizarre number of posts, status updates, and events. For example, oh my god, we're having an Orphan Thanksgiving at my place for those who couldn't make it home for the holidays. While I want to first state that I totally get that Orphan Thanksgiving is meant to mean we're not with our loving, wonderful families, so I guess we can be together. I would also love it if everyone could kindly stop calling it Orphan Thanksgiving if the people in attendance still have a family. Especially if those families are loving as I can say right? I'll edit that out. All right, then. That's what I thought. Um, if you have a caring, safe, living family during the holidays, I am happy to report that you have won the damn lottery, and you should embrace this if you haven't already. People who have this make me super happy on some level because it seems so rare to me and it's truly beautiful to behold, even if it also sends me reeling with personal grief that I'll never have that. I just won't. And man, wouldn't that be cool, even for a weekend? 
In my experience, the people who use the term Orphan Thanksgiving or even Orphan Christmas seem to be blissfully unaware that it's possible to even have abusive relatives or to have lost your parents or to have been abandoned by your parents or to have been kicked out of your home by your parents or to have had to make the difficult choice to run away from or stop speaking to your family because they were unsafe, which, yes, is a thing. I know. I wish it weren't too. So who here likes drinking, am I right? And other seamless transitions I'll attempt to make when I feel like I've gotten way too real for Gina from HR. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end okay, on Okay, good. I felt right. I know. I just went with the rhythm. Oh, no, I love that. And I think, you know, it kind of ties back into the things that we were saying before. Um, one of the, the concepts I was really interested to talk to you about today is... Um, what's your relationship to the idea of catharsis? Is it something that you actively seek out? Is it something you react against? Is it is it something that you're kind of working with at all? Yeah, well, I guess so. I guess I think of catharsis as having a sense of as having that sense of relief. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I had that yes and no. Yeah. You know because I think. So the difficult thing is, is this in terms of uh, from like a psychological perspective with with trauma specifically, um, there's a lot of people who believe that catharsis comes from just like saying a bunch of painful things and then then you've said them out loud and then now you're going to feel great. But sometimes you can actually the more you open up all these boxes, you can feel worse because it's just set off a bunch of alarms in your brain and now you're reliving everything. So yeah. it really depends. So. I think one of the challenging things of writing this book is that on some level, yes, there was this like, oh, at least I said it. But then there was also a bunch of like this brought up a lot. Like this was an incredibly hard book to write. And and I, I've I would definitely say that like writing it almost killed me because it just brought up so many painful things and I didn't have... I think that there is a reason why a lot of people who write about painful things from their past only do it once they're, like, married and have, like, a great family and a great support network because I don't think it's possible to do without that, and yet that's totally what I did. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm like, hmm. So I think that that was, you know, I, I think I kind of knew that going in, but I don't think I knew exactly how painful it was going to be. Yeah. Um. But I will say, um, again, the idea of the community from the readership has just really meant a lot to me because, and it's it's very in keeping with the book and what I talk about, stranger luck, which is my word for when strangers just are, like, very warm and seem to, like, immediately love you more than maybe, you know, your family did or, or people who were, quote-unquote, supposed to. And... There has been such a such an outpouring of that, even uh, at my at my book reading the other night. It was just like I'd never met any of these people, but it just felt like a room full of friends because there is like a shorthand now that's really strange, and I have a complicated relationship too. But when you write a book that's this personal and vulnerable and open. There is a sense that people are like, I know you, and they're not wrong. So there is kind of this beautiful, sometimes I don't like it, but but mostly I do, where I think what I wanted to achieve to some degree uh, was to give people an idea of what my internal world was like and to cut back this curtain 
uh, to pull back this curtain. Well, maybe maybe I wanted to cut it. Cut it I don't think I, I don't think I wanted to pull it. I wanted to slash it. Um, and say, like, okay, yes, I'm this person who's doing all of these things, but here is where I come from. Like, I didn't I didn't travel here on the road most people travel on. And here, here is the way that I move through the world. And because of that, I would absolutely say that people treat me with an immediate kindness and understanding that I don't think they would necessarily... I don't know. I think it'd just be different if I just wrote a book about geese or something. I don't yeah. know. Like, you know, if it was just something or like a funny book of essays. I think I think there's a way that people treat you when you write a less personal, intense book. And then a way that this book has resonated with people and there's like an immediate warmth. And I think it's like, I mean, honestly, it's kind of... I'm like I'm getting a little bit choked up, so that's that's it's it's fine. But like there's a there's a feeling that like people who really love this book like they're like rooting for me, which is really beautiful and I think um, rare um, as an as an author. Maybe I mean I think you root for people. Uh, who you like. Like, I love Sandra Bullock, and I'm rooting for her. But yeah. I, she also doesn't need me to root for her. <laughs> but I think that, like, as a person, it's like, I think because I, I shared such deep parts of myself, I think there are people who, like, care about me in a different way than, you know, maybe you care about Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, I would hope That's so. really beautiful, and, and I don't discount. So sometimes it can be kind of scary because you meet someone, and they're like, I read your book, and you're like, ah, you know too much about me. But then... They're always just like, I really loved it. I related to it. It helped me so much. And you're like, oh, this is like an instant friend now. Like, it, it feels like skipping six months of friendship yeah. somehow. <laughs> yeah, you're jump, jumping all the, the hoops. Um, yeah, it's really beautiful. No, I loved it. I got your email. And, you know, I, I just based on your kind of bio, I was expecting kind of like something like Jenny Lawson, something just like very funny, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit of biographical. But then, you know, I looked at the book. I was like, oh, no, this is different. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very glad that I answered the email. <laughs> me too. Um, I would be remiss if I did not bring up the fact that you host a live show yeah. called uh, Tinder Live. Yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> how did that concept come to be? And could you describe to our listeners a little bit about it? Yeah, I really want to bring that here. I, I'm sure I will at some point. Um, so, yeah, so I do a show called Tinder Live. I've been doing it for almost six years, which is bonkers. Um, and every now and again, I hear people who are like, oh, I think I've seen that on, like, this TV show. And I'm like, yep, uh, that's it originated here. Because uh, <laughs> that's the worst part about it when, like, someone does something that's very similar in, in a larger platform, and they're like, oh, I think so-and-so does that. And you're like, that was mine. That was mine. That was mine. <laughs> oh, yep, it started here. This is the original. Um, but uh, so I had the idea when I was on Tinder with my friends, uh, well, my roommates, which sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're not. Yeah. Um, but I was on Tinder with my roommates. They were both on Tinder, and I hadn't joined yet. And I was like, all right, if both my roommates are on Tinder at the same time, I'll try. And so I hopped on, and immediately it was like the sky broke open. And I was like, <laughs> this is so funny. And I went and got my laptop and, like, recorded us going on our Tinder live together and just doing live jokes, kind of like a mystery science theater type thing. And um, it's still a YouTube video, but, like, you can find the first first time I went on Tinder. Yeah. And um, that same night, I was like, this is a comedy show. We, we'd have my Tinder on a big screen, and like I could go through it live. And the one thing I like to say for people who haven't seen Tinder Live yet is that it's so kind. I think the one thing that people are afraid of 
is that it's just going to be me just eviscerating yeah. men who don't deserve it. And A, that's not my sense of humor. B, I don't think it'd be this long-running beloved show if it was just this bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Needless bloodbath, you know? People are cruel, but I don't think they're that cruel. Um... <laughs> What I like to say is that we don't go after if there's a guy who just seems like a nice man living his life. Uh, I throw him back into the ocean. <laughs> Swipe left. It's fine. The guys that we look for in Tinder Life, the example I like to use is, like, white guys with cornrows whose name is Amen. <laughs> like, that's who we talk to on Tinder Life. Like, the guy who is just, like, so ridiculous, who you'd never talk to. And then I play a character who's, like, very dumb and kind of drunk and, like, maybe from another planet. Like, yeah. A good example is recently um, I was talking to a guy during there was a Manhattan blackout a couple weeks ago. And um, I was like, oh, my God, how's the blackout going? I talk like that. Um, <laughs> it's basically like a drunk sorority girl. And he was like, oh, good, I just caught a cab. And I, he was like, how are you? And I was like, I just fell into a sewer. LOL, I don't know. And he was like, oh, did you get out? And I was like, no, I'm still in the sewer. How's your night? And like, just like, and they'll still keep talking to you. Yeah. And then I was like, so what else are you doing? And he's like, oh, great. So he's talking to this sewer woman. And then I was like, where are you going now? And he's like, I'm going to get some bourbon. And I wrote, what's B-U-R-B-U-N is how I spelled it. I was like, what's bourbon? And he unmatched me. Like, that was his final like, straw. Done, I can't do Sewer woman? Yes. Woman who doesn't know what bourbon is and can't spell it, even though I just spelled it for her. This is going no further. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. It's a wonderful show. I, it's really great. That's really yeah. cool. It reminds me, of, there was a, a good post a long, uh, maybe a couple years ago, about this woman yeah. who just was on Tinder asking somebody to help her pick up a mattress from Ikea. Nice. And it was like 90 conversations of people engaged <sighs> with her being like so this is this is like a thing for you to talk to people it's a really good shtick she's like no i literally yeah. <laughs> want you to come with me to pick up a mattress from ikea do you have a truck and if they right. didn't have a truck just like no we're, we're done <laughs> there yeah. was one there was one guy who had who had posted all of his like credits as a cinematographer on his thing and i was like does he think this is linkedin so then during a tinder live show we matched and i was like yeah hi all right i'm gonna need a contractor for like and i was just like trying to, and he was like he wrote back and he was like what date and i was like oh my god like this is just just so, you know, and I think what's what's beautiful about it, because it's like obviously it's not designed to just be like this this trolly thing, but yeah. for so many people and like women especially, like online dating can be like terrifying and like you know, physically scary um, potentially, but also just like people don't talk to you, no, like it just it can feel so lonely and strange, so I think that this is something that's just like, and, and I gotta tell you, like there have been guys where I've been like you seemed really cool. It's just so you know, you're on a thing called Tinder Live. And he was like, oh, my God, that's awesome. Yeah. So, like, 99% of the time, the guys are saying funny stuff back. Yeah. So I think it's probably, like, the fun, most fun conversation that they've had, too. So it's like, and they can always leave. Like, if, yeah. if they're just like, this is weird. I don't, like, I had an hour-long conversation with a man who claimed he was a wolf. And I was like, I'm a wolf, too. And he was like, I don't know if I believe you. So we spent an hour talking with me trying to prove that I was a wolf. Like, it's just very silly and very fun. Yeah, I love that, that, that like, you know, diving into the absurdism. It, that's really yeah. literally what it is. Because it's so, like, when people haven't seen it, I'm just like, no, it's not... You know, I'm not trying to, like, take some nice guy and, like, just ruin No roasts, you know. No, and it, yeah. it's not, like, I'm not, like, pretending to be their soulmate. Like, I'm just so weird on there. <laughs> Diving into the absurd is a beautiful way to put it. Well, it I love it. I hope it comes here at some point. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. Um, yeah. I uh, also, I know that there are no bylines, but do you have a favorite headline that you wrote for The Onion? Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to remember. There were, there are so, there are so many. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, um... 
there was this is the one that popped into my head. It's a little bit it's a little bit dark, yeah. but this is the one that popped in. God damn it, there's got to be at least one kid in this school who's been molested, written by a guidance counselor. <laughs> like, I remember that one. I used yeah. to... <laughs> just like someone who's just like, oh, I want to dig in and help someone. And that one in the school has just been fine. Oh, Another one that's a little bit lighter that I was so proud of is um, I wrote FCC overturned the decision to cancel Party Down because I really loved that show. So and um, that, I think, was a headline that someone, a freelancer, had written and I wrote the actual piece. Yeah. But it was so fun to write because I was so obsessed with Party Down and just, like, the idea of, like, having the FCC be like, nope, we decided that this, this show was really getting off to a great start and we're just going to, no, it's not going to be canceled. Oh, I'd sign that petition in a heartbeat. <laughs> totally. So it was like it kind of crossed a lot of a lot of things. And then I think there was, like, another one about, like, science discovers that, like, men and women were never meant to be friends or something like that. It was just something or it was something along those lines that were just like, this is we've we've confirmed this, which I don't actually believe, but it was something just like, I we don't know that this could work out. We thought we could. <laughs> um what do you think makes good satire? I think just taking very human things. I, I think oh this was now now of course they're all like flooding. But there was one I had that is a good example of this, but it was like man who is running late has no idea how long to keep pretending to be to like be sorry it was it was something like the idea of like when you're late to a meeting and you're like oh, all right yeah let's get going oh, 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 all right i feel really bad i'm just gonna keep just gonna keep letting you guys know that i was oh i know i'm late and i'm just i worked for it though right you know? right right and like just like oh how much longer should i keep pretending that like this is my penance right but like just taking Taking the human the human elements and just real moments that, like, no one ever talks about. Like, that's one of my favorite things, too, on Earth is, like, just the most human things that are really—it's, like, minutia. Yeah. But just taking it and blowing it up is yeah. so— is so fun. Like, I just wrote a piece for The New Yorker Shouts and Murmurs. Like, the headline was something along the lines of, like— I'm sorry, son. Maybe men just weren't built to play soccer. And it was a, a satire about, you know, uh, U.S. women's soccer and, like, just the— and took all of the things that we tell women yeah. that are like, well, women aren't just really built for that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's just not. It's like we just don't have the leg strength. Like <laughs> taking all those things and having a father say that to his son and being like, I'm sorry, women are just better at this. Like, maybe you just don't have it. It's just so fun for me. It's just, it's a very specific form of play. Yeah. Have you thought about writing a novel or like short stories or like fiction like that? Yeah. So my my next book, I I I want to I want to write fiction and it's 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 challenging because I love I love writing satire and then I love writing nonfiction and writing pure fiction is is a whole other thing. So yeah. I'm taking my time with it a little bit a little bit more because it's a new it's a new thing and yeah. I mean it's it's all hard in different ways. It's just that I've been writing personal essays and and nonfiction and satire for like most of my life. So I had a paper that I used to print out in like junior high that was basically The Onion, but I didn't know The Onion existed, yeah. but it was just like funny stories about kids at school. So it's like, these are things I've been doing my whole life and I haven't written as much fiction, you know, unless it was about secret doorways. Yes, of course. So <laughs> no, I, I love that. I'd be excited to see that because you, yeah, you bring thanks. so many interesting sensibilities from those other realms into that, I think. Thanks. Um, yeah. I, I know, I know I can do it and I'd like to, you know, I've always wanted to like write a romantic comedy that was the way that... I want to write it, so yeah. that's what I'm working on now. Oh, yeah. cool. Well, um, to kind of wrap us up, a question yeah. I ask everyone is, um, what are you reading right now? And actually, I asked you the other question, so what are you reading right now? <laughs> Fair. So 
I have been reading a lot of like romantic stories because yeah. um uh, like yeah I guess romance books like not romance novels but like kind of rom coms and stuff just trying to find I mean that's like more like researchy yeah but then I found I don't know sometimes I'm I'm not reading anything steadily right now actually because I'm very all or nothing like yeah. I like to really uh, immerse myself in a book and if I don't have the time to do that I won't do it like if I'm half reading it. Or, like, stealing pages here and there. I don't like it. I really like living Same. inside those worlds. So sometimes I, f- I, like, I don't have the capacity to do that. So instead, I will just rewatch the same TV shows over and over again. And that's, like, where that point of my brain is going. So right now I'm just watching old episodes of New Girl over and over again. I just did a full rewatch with my partner, actually. Really? Yeah. Awesome. I it's love so it. good. And it's like even the seasons that I was like, oh, I don't know that I like those as much. Now I do. Yeah, same. So it's like sometimes because I was like, oh, there's like some middle seasons that I was like, they're a little bit different. And now that some time has gone by, I'm like, I like that, though. Yeah, Season four and five are my favorites now. I did not expect that. Literally the same thing has happened yeah. to me. Because I was always such a, like, season two is so strong. Oh, it's great. It's so, and it is so great. But then season four and five, they just bring you a different side. Yeah. And, the, and it's they, also really great. They work the ensemble really, really well. They work it so well. And it's like there are some, um, like, there's an episode, like, The Swoot. Yes. It's really silly, and it's like a dark horse, but I remember reaching out to one of the writers of that episode, Noah Garfinkel, because we're like Twitter friends, and I was like, just so you know, I'm watching The Swoot, and this episode is so good. And I feel like it was just at a time where, like, they were just doing weird stuff, and he was like, thank you, that means a lot to me. Because it's like, there are certain seasons that just, like, get more attention than others, and I was like, this is a dark horse. That's a really good, weird... Because, again, it's diving into the absurd. It's like, we're going to make a sweatsuit suit. And they make it totally plausible with those characters. Totally plausible. Like, it's such a... I love that show. I think that show is perfect. It's great. That's fantastic, Lane. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah.